everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Grace Atwood. And I'm so excited to talk to our guest today, who's Elizabeth Holmes, yes. not the Theranos Elizabeth Holmes, the Royals Elizabeth Holmes. Yes, but before we get into it, today's episode is sponsored by Knight, the makers of our all-time favorite pillow and the face mask we have in heavy rotation these days. We also have some exciting news. They're actually starting Black Friday early for Bad on Paper listeners, and you can get 30% off all month long with code BOP30. Ooh. So how are you doing? I'm good. I have a little bit of a headache. So we are recording. Today is Wednesday. The day after the election. The day after the election. We don't know what's happening yet. I was up way past my bedtime. I had a couple too many drinks. Um, I've been on the couch all day just glued to CNN. It's been a day. It has been. Yeah. I feel like cable news is its own form of stress. Yeah. I mean, the music and just like the... It's very, like, high stress. Yeah. I was watching um, ABC last night, and they had this music, which felt very inspired by Game of Thrones for whatever they showed the projected results. It feels like Game of Thrones. Oh, my God. I was like, they used this music so many times. I was like, this music is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. Did you see on Twitter and, like, on Instagram, there's been memes going around. It's like, are you watching the season finale of of America? No. Or, like, are you watching the season finale of 2020? No, I haven't seen that. It made me laugh because I felt like I was watching, like, the season finale of, like, a really intense show, like Game of Thrones. Yeah. Well, Um, what's your high? My high. What is my high? Oh, my God. (laughs) This is, like, some people's worst nightmare. I had the best, most antisocial weekend. So I've been really working very hard to put in some better boundaries with me and work. Like I said this last year, I had the boundaries. I was doing so well. I wasn't working weekends. And then quarantine and COVID came into place. And like, it's like, oh, I don't have anything to do. Might as well do my DMs. Might as well go on Instagram. And it's not healthy. Like we're not built to just be constantly working and on our phones. So I got all of my work done, including like writing Monday's blog post by Friday afternoon. And I didn't work at all. Like I I didn't even look at my computer. I haven't done that in so long. That's amazing. It was the best feeling. And I read a couple books. I was like rotating between my anti-racist book, which is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. I also watched the movie. I'm reading Joyful by Ingrid Fatelli, which is my nonfiction read that I'm doing right now. I like to have like a few nonfiction books that I read like a chapter or two of, and then I have my like bingey thriller or like my rom-com or whatever it is. So I I was reading like chapters from those, and then I read an entire thriller, which I'll tell you guys about when we do the books. Yeah, I was going to say spoilers right up front. But I've read so much. I worked on a puzzle. The one social thing I did was you came over. We watched- I saw you twice. Yeah, we had a movie night, and then we started the puzzle. The puzzle is so hard. Um, and then the next day you came over to do a little more puzzle. Yeah. But you're the only person I saw. I feel honored. I like just lazily napped during the day. I read so much. I watched so many movies. I watched the, did you end up watching the Emma Roberts movie? Yes. What did you think? I thought it was terrible. Okay. I enjoyed it, but it was terrible. But it was just what I wanted because it's so cheesy. I didn't like it. I thought it was poorly written. I thought it was poorly written and like more poorly acted. This is the um, the holiday. The holidays, yes. And I was also, I felt slightly duped that it wasn't fully a Christmas movie. It wasn't a Christmas movie, and I think that's why I liked it. It was just a cheesy movie. I I totally have a time and a place for cheesy, and like, Lord knows I like a cheesy movie. Like, I don't have highbrow taste, as we have covered at length, but I did not love that movie. I definitely didn't love it, but I liked it. It, like, scratched an itch for me. Like, I just needed something silly and stupid, and that was it. 
And the guy's hot. Like, who is no. that guy? So he is an Australian <laughs> actor. And the whole time, so I looked him up online. His name is, I think his name is Luke Bracey. Yeah, that sounds and right. I looked him up online and it turns out that he's only 31, which would also mean that he was probably like 30 or 29 when he was filming the movie. I'm convinced he's lying about his age. He has like, or maybe it's son, but like he has like, Oh my God. He's got he has, so many wrinkles. I know. Like the I side thought of his, he was older. I was like, too. I like that they use as an older guy. No. Oh my God. I, w- I was very deep in uh, stalking him while I was watching the movie. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, no, it didn't do it for me. I'm very excited for- the one on Hulu with Dan Levy and Kristen Stewart, and I can't remember who else is in it. Okay, I don't know anything about that. It's a lesbian. Oh, movie. and the um, one of the songs from it came out on my one of my Spotify like Discovery Weekly playlists, and it's a Tegan and Sarah Christmas song, and it's like a total bop. Oh, great! So, but I just I love Dan Levy from Shit's Creek, and I I feel like Kristen Stewart is very polarizing, and I actually kind of like her. So, yeah. I'm excited about that one. There's also a Dolly Parton one coming out. Huh. Well, we've got lots of movies coming down the bike. That's good. Yeah. And if you guys listened to last week's episode, we did all of the movies and TV. We did. Yeah. So I have, I don't really have a high high. I, not, not that anything's bad. I just don't have any specifics. I mean, my silly high is that Grace caved and did a puzzle with me. If you've been listening. I'll start a puzzle with you, but you can't come in and work on my puzzle. That's the difference. You actually like quit the puzzle. I did. I hated it. There were so many just all white pieces. I was like, this is actual physical torture. So we finished all the champagne glasses and the wine glasses. And then when there was only just solid white pieces left, I was like, I'm done. So if you've been listening throughout quarantine, you know that I think a puzzle is a group activity and Grace thinks it's a solo activity. And so getting her to cave and do a puzzle with me was like a a very big accomplishment. I I enjoyed puzzling with you a lot. It was great. I had a good time. You were way better at that puzzle than I was. I Well, I also just was like, fuck this. Yeah. At one point, she like ordered food and was eating pizza alone on her couch while I was doing the yeah, puzzle. Yeah. That was when there was only white pieces left. Yeah. So, I mean, that was like my silly high. And then also, I was complaining last week about my back and I've started doing, I've rekindled my relationship with Melissa. Isn't she just the best? She is. I love her. And I've been doing more Melissa workouts and it was immediately clear that I felt like a bowl full of jelly when I did the first one. So it it's like kind of nice to be back in the groove. Yeah. It takes time. It's like good, bad. Yeah. And it's, I feel like as I get stronger, some of the workouts get harder because like you're, you're suddenly aware of these. You're like doing it right. You're yeah. Like, oh. And there's like muscles you didn't have. Like. <laughs> like there was like weird side muscles that definitely didn't exist like two yeah. months ago. Because sometimes I feel like she'll tell you to do something and I just won't do it. Like she'll be like, and like chaturanga down into like a like yoga push up. And I'm like, nah. Yeah. Or when she has let you like in a side plank and then she wants you to lift your top leg and have it like crunch up to meet your arm I'm like yeah that's not gonna happen for me today Melissa <laughs> but it's something to aspire to I don't want to be able to do all of the workouts because then if I can then like where do you go from there I don't know yeah what about Lowe's um I think it's just been a lot of general uncertainty about the election yeah I don't want to not like curse us but right now I'm feeling like decently good it's just been like a lot it's really overwhelming i find that i get really addicted to the news like today i did totally. no work like it's 3 30 we're recording i kind of planned my my week so that i would really only have to do about two hours of work today because i just knew i'd be like a mess like i worked really late on monday but that's the great thing about being self-employed is that like i was looking at my calendar i'm like wednesday is gonna kind of suck so i will record the podcast and do like a couple hours of work 
Yeah, no, um, I agree. I feel like it is my low, but it also was an expected low. Like, it's not anything that I didn't expect or, like, worse than I expected. It just, like, is anxiety-inducing to be waiting and to be watching all the news. Yeah, it's really ominous here. Also, I was I went into the city last night. I had a pre-election dinner with Katie, Katie Serino and um, Ryan, who's um, extra, extra style on Instagram. And... <laughs> Everything in the city was completely boarded up. Like even as we were eating Everyone's dinner, been asking me about that. Like, yeah, the whole city is boarded up. A call with people who live outside of New York. They're like, "How are things in New York?" And the only thing that's boarded up in Williamsburg is the Apple Store. Yeah, but, like nothing else is boarded up. And so, I mean, I've seen it obviously on the news. I know it's happening, but I it feels like a whole different world. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. Like we were eating pasta, and they were like drilling into the walls to board up the restaurant's windows. <laughs> so that was just it. Just felt like very like ominous and foreboding. Like we were preparing for like the world end. <laughs> but yeah, I would just say general nervousness. To your point, you're so rational. It's exactly what we expected so far. Yeah. So we'll just see. Yeah, that is my low too. You know what is also a high? What? When people leave us reviews. Oh my God. I love when you guys leave us reviews. I know that we are a broken record. And I I also know that you hear this on every single podcast. Except the person that says that I don't understand sarcasm. <laughs> oh, I mean, there'll always be some bad ones in the good yeah. ones. It's, we're, we're just trying to get the last few people left because, mm-hmm. you know, 3,000 of you have already left us reviews, which Thank we're you. so grateful for. But yeah, every podcast says it because it's the most important thing to Apple in terms of like getting discovered. So we would appreciate it. And if you've already reviewed us and uh, you are as obsessed with Elizabeth Holmes as we are, share this episode on your Instagram story or tell a friend about it. That's so meaningful to us to help us grow. It also helps us get great guests. Like when somebody goes to look us up, if we ask them to be a guest and they see, you know, maybe we've got 5,000 reviews. We've only got three right now. That might make them more likely to say yes. So it helps getting more people like Elizabeth. So let's get into our interview with her. Yes. So we are so excited. We have Elizabeth Holmes with us here today, who is the author of HRH, So Many Thoughts on Royal Style. So Elizabeth spent over a decade at the Wall Street Journal, most recently as a senior style reporter and columnist exploring the power of fashion. She's pulled her unique expertise into her first book, a nuanced look at the fashion and branding of the four most influential members of the British royal family, Queen Elizabeth II, Princess Diana, Catherine, the Duchess of Cambridge, and Megan, Duchess of Sussex. So she was a guest of ours at our San Francisco live show last September, October. While you were gone, we were like, that feels like it was like 10 years ago. It truly does. But we've been dying to have her on the podcast ever since then, and we figured that her book was the perfect excuse. So we are so excited to have you, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And I don't think that we've ever talked about the royals on this podcast, so we're broaching totally new topic territory. Yeah. Oh, welcome to my world. I know. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) So Very glittering. (laughs) Very glittering. So we introduced you, but it would be great if you could just tell us in your own words, who is Elizabeth Holmes and what what are you all about? Well, I should probably say I'm not that Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> get that right out of the way. Well, that was our some second of, question, which we'll get into. Some of your listeners might be um, disappointed. Um, no, I am Elizabeth Holmes, the journalist. Uh, I um, have 
spent uh, a decade of my career at the Wall Street Journal. Before that, I worked um, in more local news, um, first in television and then a local newspaper outside of Chicago. Um, but the bulk of my career was spent at the Wall Street Journal, um, which was an incredible experience, a sort of life-changing experience. I covered many different things at the Journal, including the 2008 presidential campaign, which feels like a lifetime ago. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, I was covering uh, Mitt Romney, uh, John McCain, and then Sarah Palin. Um, Remember how that, that felt dramatic? <laughs> Very. And I thought it could never get crazier. And here we are. Um, but I would say that I hit my stride at the paper as a feature reporter. I was a senior style reporter and columnist. And this being the Wall Street Journal, I got to cover the business of fashion, right? So I would, I would go to Fashion Week um, and look at the beautiful clothes, but then also try and understand sort of the, the inspiration behind the collection and the marketing and the positioning and the branding and what clothes could say, you know, what designers were trying to do and how they were trying to market them to consumers. Um, And that was a great introduction to uh, where I find myself now because it's thinking about fashion in in a new way. You know, you sort of put on these glasses and say, like, what are these clothes trying to say? What are they trying to do? You know, what do they represent? And um, I happen to be interested in the royal family. Um, I have been for almost a decade now. And with my new book, those two sort of um, bubbles of my Venn diagram have overlapped (laughs) quite nicely. So before we talk about what you do do, I want to talk about what you don't do. You're not the Theranos Elizabeth Holmes. And we got a lot of questions for her. I really made a mistake not clarifying that in the when I did the question box. We got like questions being like, how do you feel about lying? Do you wish you didn't lie? <laughs> I was like, oh, gosh. Oh, man. But I, I, how confusing is that? How does that affect you? Like, how do you feel about sharing your name with the other Elizabeth Holmes? <laughs> well, I have known about her for uh, quite some time because she infiltrated my Google results back um, in my journal days. And so much so that I just turned it off because I was like, I can't actually, you know, as a journalist, you you have a Google alert on yourself right, right. and um, you try and keep tabs on like what people are saying. And it, the unfortunate thing is we share a middle name too. No. So, yes. Um, it's her middle name is Anne and mine is too. She spells it with an E and I do not. Um, so unfortunately, like a middle initial wouldn't even save me here. Wow. Um, yes. But she is um, she's younger. So I, I, I like to say I came first. And, you know, it's interesting because in, in the journalism world, again, like your name, your byline is a big part of your profession. And I was at the Wall Street Journal at the time that the Wall Street Journal was taking her down. You know, I mean, all of those exposés on, on Theranos um, came out of the Wall Street Journal. or That's where a lot of them started by a, a really talented reporter there named John Carreyrou. Um, so I've kept tabs on her. You know, I, I sort of watched her um, climb and then watched her fall. And Thankfully, as I go into promoting my book here, she's gone kind of quiet as she waits for her her next sort of steps in her legal proceedings. So, yes, I like to say I'm not that Elizabeth Holmes. You're the original. Yes. Yes. So we didn't say this in your intro, but I feel like the book really started with So Many Thoughts, which is a series that you do on Instagram where you um, give your thoughts on royal style. So I'm very curious what sparked your first SMT, your first so many thoughts on Instagram. And how did you know that it was like a thing? Well, so to back up, I left the Wall Street Journal in 2017. I had been on staff for a decade. I moved from New York to California with my family. I was pregnant with my second child at the time when we moved, and I was trying to launch a freelance career. And going from being on staff somewhere to suddenly, you know, hustling, (laughs) being paid by the word and, you know, trying to make connections, it was a challenge. I'll I'll be really honest. You know, it felt really sort of unfamiliar for me um, to, to 
professionally. So I was, you know, I was really out there and I was hustling and I was trying to make a name for myself as a freelancer. And I had my second son and, you know, all the emotions and hormones and things that go with that too. And I was spending a lot of time on my phone because I missed New York terribly and I missed my sort of my life in New York. Um, But that's the beauty of social media, right? You can kind of keep your foot in the conversation or your foot in the door, I guess, <laughs> and your voice in the conversation. And um, so I was spending a lot of time on Instagram and I've always loved Instagram. I, I admire um, people who can do creative things on social media, who can tell stories and build audiences. And I had always had an interest in the royal family. I got married in 2011. That was the same year Kate and Will got married. I was sort of smitten with their you know, fairy tale uh, for her to, you know, put that cliche out there, but, you know, a commoner finding her prince. I thought it was all very exciting. And so I'd always kept tabs on them, but nobody in my actual friend circle <laughs> shared certainly my level of enthusiasm. You know, they indulged it in some ways, but yeah. they weren't perhaps as interested as I was. And so what I found on Instagram was that there was a community of people who want to talk about the royal family. That's the best thing, right? About Instagram, you can find your sort of people and your interests. And so one day in the late in 2017, I saw a picture of Will and Kate. It was their holiday card portrait pop up in my feed. And I thought to myself, I have so many thoughts about this. And so I literally just screenshotted it. I put so many thoughts across the bottom. I posted to Instagram and then I reposted it a second time with a bunch of text bubbles with my sort of commentary sprinkled throughout. Not particularly pretty or all that readable even. Uh, but I posted it and I realized that I had I had found my people. <laughs> I had found people who wanted to talk about it. My DMs kind of blew up. I had never really DMed much on Instagram before. And there were all these people that wanted to talk about the royal family. And so I was like, oh, you, yes, let's do this. And so Harry and Meghan released their engagement portraits a couple of days later. And I did the same thing and I got the same response. And I was just thrilled to find this this group of people, this community online that want to talk about the royal family. That said, so I kept going. I kept screenshotting and adding my commentary. And I wanted to connect with these people. And what I found I could add to the conversation was that decade that I had spent at the Journal of Understanding Style Reporting, of being able to, you know, translate the language of clothes to connect the dots into their choices and their style and say what it might mean. And, you know, the royal space online, there are tons of dedicated fan accounts that cover every single move of these women and their sort of very glamorous lives. But what I wanted to do was sort of find my own way in, find my own way into the conversation. And by sort of dissecting their style by trying to understand what they were trying to say through their clothes. That was sort of my niche. And I, and I latched onto it. Now that what you just said is really interesting. I think to both of us, um, talk to us a little bit about how you see the Royals using fashion to send a message, because that was something I had never, I, I, I'm just like, maybe I'm like, I, I'm like the one person I know that like, doesn't pay attention to pop culture, the Royals, everything. And when I started following you, I was just fascinated by this, this whole idea. Like it's almost like a secret code. Yes. And I think that's what makes royal fashion so interesting. Like, don't get me wrong. I love a great red carpet. I love looking at, you know, the Met Gala, those, those fanciful costumes come down the red carpet, but what the royal women have to do and what they, how they use their clothes, I think is really sort of singular in its power. So these women, Kate and Megan specifically, they don't tend to give big revealing interviews. They don't give deeply personal speeches. They don't do a lot of talking traditionally in the royal family. They are there to appear on behalf of Her Majesty, right, to service the crown. And so they step out all the time and those appearances get a tremendous amount of attention. Pictures go 
around the globe in seconds. I see them on my Instagram feed. I mean, people see them everywhere. And they know that and they use that because before we see what cause they are supporting, what event they are attending, just human nature, you see what they're wearing, right? (laughs) You're drawn to their clothes. And there's something really exciting about royal style, right? It's that princess, that Disney princess dream that so many of us were raised on. And Kate and Megan know they get this attention and very smartly they use it to their advantage. And I think that identifying what they're trying to do with their clothing by picking a designer that's a small brand that they're supporting and suddenly gets a big boost from their wearing or wearing a color on tour that matches the country's flag of the the country that they're visiting. By putting that extra thought into it and by recognizing that, it's a way of sort of honoring the effort that they're putting into it because they are using their clothes to further their duties And it's just, it's really smart and it speaks to how much clothes can do, how much power there is in fashion. Let's take a quick ad break. So you know how I know that I'm an adult? Because I am about to tell you why socks are the perfect holiday gift and I 100% believe it. So we are so excited about today's sponsor. It's Bombas and they make the most comfortable socks ever. They are the best socks. Like, I can't believe how passionately I feel about Me too. socks. Me like, too. I feel like such a nerd. But they have literally rethought every little detail of the socks we wear to make them more comfortable. These are my favorite socks. They're so cozy. They feel like walking on a cloud. My favorites, personally, are the no-show for workouts, but I also really have a soft spot for their compression socks. I used to keep a pair in my carry on for long flights. But now sometimes I wear them just sitting at home. They just feel really good on your legs. Like I feel like it's like helping with my circulation and stuff. Oh, interesting. I've never I've never tried compression socks. Oh, they're great. I'm a really big fan of their sport socks. So I use those to work out. And I do also like their no-show socks for the summer to wear with like, you know, like fashion sneakers, not mm-hmm. like chunky sneakers. But I historically like stock up every fall and I get myself a few pairs and it's gotten to the point where I've gotten rid of all my other socks because these socks are just so much better than any other sock. Yes. I always ask for nice socks for Christmas because I think it's just such a silly thing. But good socks are just one of those little luxuries I'll never splurge on, even though I, you know you wear socks every single day. So I I definitely recommend adding Bombas to your holiday list. Um, And it's really important to note that besides keeping our feet comfy and cozy, they are also doing really good things. So they help to give back to some of the most vulnerable members of our community. Yes. So for every pair of socks you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. And to date, Bombas has donated over 40 million pairs of socks and counting. Yes. And they work with a nationwide network of 3,000 plus giving partners. And the impact is more powerful than ever. So to those experiencing homelessness, these socks represent the dignity of putting on clean clothes, which is such a small but important comfort. I really love this. And I also love that we have a code for you. So from comfort to kindness and everything in between, Bombas aren't just givable. They were made to give. Go to bombas.com slash B-O-P today and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash B-O-P. Again, that's bombas.com slash B-O-P. Let's get back to the episode. Now, how do you pick the outfits that you, you decide to feature? So with so many thoughts, I've sort of gotten in a pattern of just 
whenever they step out, I, you know, screenshot it and try and understand, try and connect the dots. You know, the thing about Royal Fashion that is also fun is that you never really know, right? Like they don't talk about this stuff. Their whole motto is never complain, never explain. And so they're not going to come out and be like, I chose this designer because she matters to me or something like that. You have to sort of do the digging yourself. So it's like a little investigation each time. And I try and keep up close to real time. Um, I've sort of fallen off in the pandemic. Um, so sometimes it's a couple of days late, but I try and, you know, they make regular appearances. That's their job, you know, to go out and be seen or certainly even be seen on a Zoom screen right now. And so I try and I try and weigh in whenever they appear. Now, what about favorites? What would you say your favorite royal fashion moment has been so far? And also, what's one that maybe missed the mark a little bit for you? Well, so if I sort of step back and um, and think about Kate and Megan, I think that that what they do and what is sort of most fascinating to me is the progression, right? If you, beyond like a single look, although there are some really fun and very beautiful looks, I think if you sort of see how they come into their own and the language that they're using and how sort of sophisticated they get to be. So for Kate, Kate, from all from all my reporting would suggest she's not naturally into fashion. You know, she's not somebody who's like super into clothes. But I think she, um, very much like the queen before her, recognizes that it's a big part of her duties. And more recently, she has really gone more fashion forward. And I think that's really exciting to see. And so she stepped out, it was a while ago now, back when there were a lot more public engagements, but she stepped out in this very beautiful um, navy polka dot dress um, that when she was just standing still looked like a really beautiful navy polka dot dress. <laughs> it was sort of long and demure and, you know, she was, it looked like a, a shirt dress that you would expect Kate to wear. But then when she took it step, she hadn't like sewn up the slit at all. And so it was this real big flash of leg. <laughs> And there, and again, it's just, it's the smallest thing, but it made for a really exciting picture. And then suddenly people are like, oh, what's happening? You know, like, what's that picture from Kate? And oh, then you can see that she's at, you know, I believe she was at a museum that day. Um, and you sort of learn a little bit more about their causes. And so when, when they recognize that there's just, they just have to give just the tiniest little bit of fashion forwardness and it makes people really excited. For Megan, I would say that Megan's Megan's capes are still some of my most favorite of her time in the royal fold because she made that sort of a signature style of hers and she interpreted it in all kinds of different ways. But their very final engagement as senior working royal, she wore this green caped Amelia Wickstead dress um, to the Commonwealth Service, and it was just just like the perfect regal dramatic flair. Like who gets to wear a cape? Like it's I I, I loved it. I'm curious, what outfits of Meghan and Kate's do you think will be seen as iconic in 20 years? And it's really funny. I'm curious to get your thoughts because for me, the iconic Diana moments for me are not her most dressed up ones. Like I think of the sweater, the um, the sweater with the sheep on it. I think of like that photo of her with the bike shorts on. Like I think of some of her more undone moments, but I'm wondering what you predict will be the iconic Kate and Megan moments. You know, I will I will echo you on Diana because so HRH the book looks at Kate and Megan, but then it sort of steps back to look at the Queen and Diana and how yeah. they set the stage for all of this. And Diana did so beautifully. I mean, she loved fashion. You can see it. She found it very empowering and she used it in really new and exciting ways, especially for that time. And I totally agree that some of her 
more dressed down moments are some of her most lasting. I mean, certainly they look the most trendy now, right? To see very on trend for 2020. Oh my gosh. I know. (laughs) When Kim Kardashian stepped out in like a sweatshirt and bike shorts, I was like, Diana did it first. You know, I mean, she was, (laughs) (laughs) she was very, um, she was very smart about that stuff. And she knew that there was something really tantalizing about seeing a royal woman that dressed down. Right. You know, because we're used to seeing them so buttoned up for Kate and Megan. This might like sound like sort of a cop out, but I would say both of their wedding gowns are phenomenal in their ability to stand the test of time. Because if you look at I mean, if you're familiar at all with Diana's wedding gown, (laughs) that (laughs) massive frothy confection, you look at that and you think, yes, she got married in 1981. You know, Mm -hmm. it's so obvious that she was, you know, a 20 year old child of the early 80s. I mean, it's just it's it it speaks to that moment in time and certainly the chaos that was to come. But what I think is so impressive about both uh, Kate's McQueen gown and Megan's Givenchy gown is that those dresses, I think, in 10 years and 20 years will look every bit as beautiful. They just are so classic and representative of who they are and their roles within the monarchy that I think about those dresses and I'm like, oh, they just nailed it. Yeah. Now, here's a good question. If you could interview Kate and Megan, but you only got to ask one question to each of them, what would you ask them? That's so tricky. I would, I, I think for Megan, I would want to know, oh gosh, I got to think about that for a second. I would want to know, you know, there's that famous interview that they did last fall where someone asked, how are you doing? And she said, thanks. You know, people don't really ask that of me. I would want to know that for Megan. I would say, like, how are you doing? Like, because of all that they went through and all that they've changed, I would want to know, how are you doing and and what are you hopeful about? You know what I mean? Because they are working so hard right now on sort of laying the groundwork for this next chapter. They're working, they're talking a lot about, you know, positive conversations online and how to improve that discourse and things like that. And I would really want to know from Megan how that's going. You know, I mean, it it looks to me like they've really hit their stride, but you never know, right? Unless you ask someone. For Kate, I'd want (laughs) to, there's so much about Kate that you're like, what are you thinking? You know, like, (laughs) what does it feel like to be her? I mean, she is so on message and restrained at every turn, her public appearances. You know, I mean, she has been doing this for so long and I think she's reached a new comfort level. Um, She's certainly sort of hit her stride in a number of ways. Um, but it's always kind of hard to know with Kate what she's thinking. She doesn't give a lot um, in terms of her her personal thoughts. Another question that we got was about, so SMT has, has kind of been mostly about the royals, but would you ever consider expanding it beyond royals? Or have you ever done? I feel like I've seen you do red carpets before, once or twice. Yes, I would. I, I that's sort of my dream here because I think more so than my interest in the royals, it's my interest in fashion mm-hmm. that is kind of driving all of this. And I think once you start to see the world through the like the power of fashion and what fashion can do and what it can say, there's a lot that it applies to. I yep. did. Um, I've commented a little bit on Kamala Harris's style on the campaign trail, and like that was. It's been thr- <laughs> thrilling to me to be able to combine that like professional past of mine knowing you know what a campaign trail is like and the staging and the choreography that goes into all of this and certainly the intentionality behind what they wear 
you know, what candidates wear on the campaign trail. Um, and to, so when I see her in her Converse sneakers, it's like all these like lights go off. You're like, yes, yes, that is very purposeful. That is, that is making a statement that is showing that she is, you know, of the people and that she's, you know, ready to work and ready to move. And, you know, it's such a different vibe than high heels. And so I would love to expand SMT beyond that because I think anybody who dresses purposefully um, and with thought and is trying to say something with their clothes. I think those are my people. (laughs) That's what I want to talk about. I have loved Kamala Harris's, the videos of her getting off the campaign jet. Like amazing. Yeah. There's been so many of them that you're just like, yes. Like she just, she also has such a great walk. Like I feel like she walks with like a powerful gait that you're like, yeah. That's hard too. I know. Those tarmacs can be kind of windy and, you know, they like your hair can be in your face and stuff, but she makes it look so badass every time. Totally. And yeah. even when she is wearing heels, which is less frequent, like those plane steps, like I feel like you kind of have to take them sidestep. Like I don't feel like there's a really easy way to get off one of those in heels. No, yeah. no. I think it's hard. And I think, you know, I mean, she, there have not been that many female candidates on a major party ticket like this. And so we can have a much bigger conversation and we, I think we should about, know whether you know why we pay so much attention to what women wear versus what men wear but when i see women you know recognize the attention that their wardrobes get and harness that you know and use that um it's really exciting to me do we know for a fact do do kate and megan work with stylists do we know who those people are so so Part of what I find really interesting about the royal family and their approach to style is that it's pretty uh, minimal in terms of the teams associated with it. So the queen has a whole team of people that uh, that is their job. They are her. They they are the people that are there to dress her. Not not actually physically. She gets dressed herself, but they are the people who prep the clothes and store the clothes and archive the clothes and all of that. But aside from her. It even even with Diana, the 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 principals, as it were, are very hands on. They're very involved in their wardrobe. So, Kate has somebody that she works with closely, but it's less a stylist and more uh, sort of a coordinator um, who handles a lot of the logistics of ordering and tailoring and you know forming those relationships with designers. Megan, uh, especially as in her time as a senior working royal, she styled herself was the sort of the line that came out of there. She obviously is very close friends with several people in the fashion world. Um, and I'm sure she got a lot of help and advice from them. But there is sort of an authenticity to their clothing choices, because it's not just, you know, a Hollywood stylist that is saying, wear this kind of thing. You know, it, you feel very much that they are choosing some of this themselves. Right. I was asking because I imagine, and this is purely speculative, and maybe it's wrong. But with Kamala, I would have to imagine that, you know, because she has such a huge job outside of her clothes, that either if she is styling things to make a message it's through a stylist not necessarily of her own volition or maybe maybe she is doing this as a hobby or like as a side thing um so i was just wondering if the if the royal women are involved in theirs or if there are people behind the scenes who you know to your point are curating these small designers or you know curating these messages for them but it sounds like a great question because there's you know i mean if you're familiar with Hollywood, you know that, that like styling is an art. It mm-hmm. is a profession. It is something people are very good at. If you talk to a Hollywood stylist and they're talking about, you know, a big movie and the campaign surrounding it, um, you know, if there's a chance that an actress will be up for an Oscar or something like that, they will plot out looks very intentionally to sort of build and and make different moments within that. I mean, this is a very this is a very thoughtful process. I would say for the royals and 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 politicians alike that they are perhaps more involved and they have less 
resources in that sense, but there still is very much a team. And especially on the campaign trail, there is a team of people whose job it is to help her, to think of these things for her um, and to position her. But then you look at, you know, I mean, when Hillary Clinton was running, she, for her three debates, she wore um, Ralph Lauren. They worked very closely and supposedly Anna Winter was involved in the, in those decisions too. So there are always people that are, are, are willing to help yeah, <laughs> and the yeah. fashion world is excited about this. Yeah. What about the royal kids? So I've seen you do a couple of so many thoughts about the family photo shoots when the palace releases uh, portraits, but will you cover their fashion as they grow into adults? You know, somebody asked me, are you just going to keep like weighing in for like every time they step out for the rest of the time? <laughs> I was like, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not sure about that. Um, the pictures that we see of the kids now, I think, are really, really exciting and very intentional. Will and Kate, um, the way that they operate with their children, and I would say this too of Megan and Harry with Archie, with baby Archie, they all learned a lot from the Diana era and have controlled that message, you know, that they put out there about their kids. There used to be in royal family land, there used to be, um, you know, some really wonderful photo ops where the kids were sort of paraded in front of the the cameras. So, you know, a young William and a young Harry and the press was much more sort of present in their young lives. And you can see now um, with Kate and Will and Megan and Harry that they don't do that, you know, that they only release very specific pictures. And there's something in the in the way that they put together those pictures now that I find very charming because they are still doing it very intentionally. They're trying to put forth an image, right? This is all branding. This this is an exercise in brand building and image building and things like that. And so when you see a picture of Prince William, who is a future king, you know, s- sitting on a swing with his children sort of dangling around him all smiley and casual, it's a very relatable portrait of a family, not necessarily a removed monarch. And that, again, is part of the brand that they are building and part of the way that they sort of continue this centuries-old institution. Now, I consume most of my royals content through you, so I feel like you're my filter. So, and I only see these very controlled portraits. Are there paparazzi shots and you choose not to um, use them to not encourage that? Or are they only being shot in these like very controlled portrait settings? So the fashion that I am interested in is their public facing appearances, right? So those those moments, and especially in pre-COVID times, were highly choreographed. It is sort of like the campaign trail where, mm-hmm. you know, there's an advanced staff and they go out and they scout the location and they know what the backdrop is going to be and they pick out an outfit that, you know, won't blend in or won't clash and they look at, you know, what other people will be wearing and they want to make it, they stage it. It's all very staged. And that effort is what I'm interested in. Okay. So- how their clothes fit into that picture there. So like you'll often see like Kate went Kate stepped out and she'll match the logo of wherever she's attending. You know, I mean it's sort of like makes all the colors look together. It makes these, you know, beautiful photographs. And that staging is what I'm interested in. Their personal style. So like some of the best photographs of Megan are just paparazzi shots where she looks fantastic. You know, she's in distressed jeans with a cool heel, you know, a, a, a sort of a jacket over her shoulders kind of thing that is personal style and and while I as a viewer really enjoy those photographs I don't think it's the same level of thought and therefore sort of appropriate for the the kind of dissection that I do that's so interesting I I didn't realize that there was so much thought behind it um and I I'm just so interested in your point of view on on kind of hearing oh, they do they I mean it. 
They do. I mean, all of this stuff, and this was something I learned as a campaign trail reporter. You know, I mean, there are whole teams of people, they're called advanced teams, that go ahead and stage all this stuff. And it's the same in the royal world. If they go on a tour, they go to every single stop on that tour well in advance. They take pictures, they plan it, they, where should the cameras face, what should the backdrop be, where, what will the people be wearing? There's all this thought that goes into it. And so it's kind of fun to think about things and and look at engagements knowing that this was all pre-planned yep. and trying to you know, anticipate and make the most beautiful and powerful visuals you can. Yeah. Let's take another quick ad break. So by now you know that we are pretty obsessed with the brand Night. And if you don't know how it started, it all started with our obsession with their famous Night Pillow. So it is legitimately life-changing. And I'm not being hyperbolic here. It's a memory foam pillow that cradles your head and then bounces back if you move. And I was pretty skeptical going into this, and I didn't think I'd notice a difference because I'm already a pretty good sleeper, but I was wrong. I noticed a difference. Now, take it from me as someone who is not a good sleeper, this pillow changed the game for me. But it's not just about comfort, although that's really important too. Um, Knight is actually a beauty textiles company. So you might be scratching your head saying, What are beauty textiles? Well, Night focuses on products that interact with your skin and your hair, and their silk products have major beauty benefits. So think, a silk pillowcase that extends a blowout or a face mask that helps to prevent maskne. So with the holidays right around the corner, we think there are a lot of people in your life who would love something from Night. So two of my favorite giftable items are first the silk scrunchies. I live for these. I'm pretty much never without one. And I love that they don't tug my hair and create breakage. and They also don't leave a crease. And then also, I haven't tried them yet, but they just released their silk headbands, which I think would be a good gift. And then my second item is I am a ride or die for their eye mask for sleeping. It's so comfortable. I've actually had mine for probably like a year and a half now, and it's worn so well. And they just released a super cute Zodiac version, which I think is really cute and would be a perfect gift. Or if you're gifting yourself, why not just start with their signature pillow? Although I actually got the pillows for both of my parents as a combo gift for my mom's birthday and Father's Day, and I got a lot of brownie points for that one. They are complete converts, especially during quarantine when having a cozy home and getting sleep is important. Investing in making my bed as comfortable as possible is definitely a part of my self-care. And if you're trying to shop small this holiday, I love that Night is a small female-owned business, and I just always feel better knowing that my dollars are going to good people. Yes. And we save the best part for last. Knight is extending their Black Friday offer for Bad on Paper listeners for the whole month of November. So you can take 30% off of all of Knight's amazing beauty sleep products and the mask with the code BOP30 at discoverknight.com. Again, that's 30% off site-wide at discoverknight.com with code BOP30 for the whole month of November. Now back to the episode. What about Instagram? Do you think Instagram has changed how they're using fashion and and how they're kind of doing all this planning? Yes, I think that there um, is an accessibility to royal photographs now that there was certainly not um, mm-hmm. before social media popped up. Diana, one of my favorite quotes in HRH is um, from a photographer, and he said, you know, even if we didn't care about the engagement, we would show up to see what Diana was wearing. And fashion was a reason for people to show up to her events. And she, her rise coincided very much with sort of the media explosion of, you know, uh, celebrity coverage. And so she would have been news on her own, but her fashion kept her on the front page. It kept her 
in that coverage, in that discussion. And so, but those, those papers came out once a day, right? Yeah. You'd look for them on your doorstep or you'd, you know, look for your glossy weekly magazine kind of thing and, and you would get your fill there. And now with Instagram, with Kate and Megan, my gosh, the minute they do anything, it's all over everywhere immediately. I mean, every fashion magazine covers it. Every fan account puts it up. I mean, people, these photographs are just everywhere. And I think it makes the importance of their clothes that much greater. Also with Google to some extent, because, you know, thinking about Diana, I guess you could cut clippings and like archive her style and and look at it across a period of time. But like, I feel like it would be harder to compare, to have that comparative view of her style unless a magazine was running like a retrospective or something than like plugging Kate's name into a search engine and being like Kate Middleton 2019 and seeing everything she wore. Yeah. Well, so they feel so much more familiar to us now, right? Because we see them all the time and we feel like we kind of know them, you know, even though we don't at all. And so this whole relatable bent that the royal family has been on, especially since Diana's death and since Kate entered the picture as a commoner, that is fairly new. You know, I mean, in Diana's day, people wanted her to look like a princess. They wanted that very fanciful sort of tiara wearing image projected. And they liked to see that when they could. But now we see them all the time. You know, I mean, yeah. every single thing they do from every angle. And I think that's very much changed our relationship. At, and especially as a royal viewer, you can, it, it's all out there. Yeah. 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 So before we talk more about your book, I want to take a quick detour and talk a little bit about how the Black Lives Matter movement and how some of these conversations around racial justice have impacted the way that you cover royal style. So um, I know from your Instagram that you've definitely made some pivots and changed the way you SMT Megan. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, absolutely. I would say that 2020 has been um, a tremendous opportunity for me to learn more and do a lot better, to paraphrase that um, famous quote. Uh, my early commentary on Megan um, came from very much a place of, um, or my commentary, I would say, on both Kate and Megan was very much sort of based on entertaining and making it fun and quippy. And a lot of it was just far too casual for my taste looking back. And I was glad for a chance earlier this year to talk about that a little bit. So one example that has come up a lot is my comments on Megan's hair. She famously wore, especially a lot in those early days, what was a style that a lot of people, myself included, called a messy bun. And that was something that, you know, beauty publications would call it her own hairdresser, described it as a messy bun. I saw it and I thought, oh, that's a messy bun. Like, <laughs> I know that, that I know what that looks like. And what I failed spectacularly to do was to understand the very complicated conversation around black women and their hair and what what a messy bun, what that term would mean to them. And again, my intent was not ever to offend, but it does not change the impact. And I did offend a lot of people. And so earlier this year, uh, you know, in light of the much bigger and important conversation about Black Lives Matter and following the death of George Floyd, I sort of wanted to come forward and acknowledge all of that because it's not okay. What I did, what I did was wrong. And I was glad to be able to say that and to learn and to apologize and, you know, do better going forward. And so I have said, you know, I'm not, it was inappropriate for me as a white woman to comment on Megan's hair. And I apologize for that. It does not change certainly the impact or the offense that I have caused, but um, I can sort of promise to do a lot better going forward. And so, for example, in the book, 
you will not see the term messy mm-hmm. one. I mean, that, that, you know, a lot of people want to, you know, explore that further with me. I'm glad to be able to do that, to, to sort of learn in public the way that I have on Instagram. Um, and people say, well, you know, her stylist called it a messy bun. It doesn't matter. It's an offensive term and I shouldn't have used it. And so I'm very glad for the chance to do better here. And I think um, doing it, like I said, in public on Instagram has been a real learning experience. And the best part of it is that I think I've helped other, especially white women, learn along with me. It's hard to learn publicly like as you go. I mean it's it's the learning process is, has been really intense. I know for me this year and it's hard when you also have all these people watching you as you're learning. So I think you've just handled it tremendously well. Thank you. You know I mean I think I'm I'm at my core deeply ashamed for the ways in which I have upset people and offended people and the the stuff that I said not knowing better when I definitely should have known better. And I think being a person on the internet (laughs) can be a challenge. And um, I'm grateful to a lot of of my followers who have helped me learn and helped me understand, um, certainly, and um, have sort of stuck with me through all of this. Now, what about the term team both? So for a long time, you had used that, but you've recently moved away from that. Can we talk about that shift too? Yes, absolutely. So in the fall of 2018 is when so many thoughts really got some momentum. It was during the tour. Um, Harry and Meghan took a really long tour uh, down to Australia and New Zealand. That feels like 10 years ago. It was so long. <laughs> it was so long. It was like what another is time like, anymore? Yeah. I don't even know. I don't even know. And there was this like this narrative that was emerging, especially in the fan account space, where you were Team Kate or Team Megan. And it was driving me nuts. I was like, there is so much negativity. And it wasn't just about supporting the person that you chose your team to be on. It was about like defending them. And it got really ugly. And I think a lot of people, I mean, I think more people are familiar now because of how much Megan has spoken out about it. But the royal fandom space was getting really negative. It was getting really ugly. It was people pitting each other against, you know, pitting the duchesses against each other. And listen, that is such a tired narrative, right? (laughs) That the media and, you know, the internet will often try and push, you know, pit two women against each other. And so I, I came out and said, you do not have to choose. You can be team both. And it was sort of a naive and like clumsy term. But it was just my my point was just to say, listen, you can follow and love Megan. You can follow and love Kate. You don't have to love them equally or love them the same. But like you don't have to be against the other one. Like, let's just be team both here. And I wanted to make it very clear that my account was a space about both Kate and Megan. And um, I think that was an important thing to sort of state early on what I did not realize and what... um, I learned over the summer was that it became an offensive term to some people and it became somebody equated it to all lives matter, you know, in the conversation around black lives matter. And that was horrific to me because I would never ever intend for it to be construed as such. And so although it meant a lot to a lot of people because a lot of people had sort of reached out to me and said how much they appreciated this idea that you don't have to choose a side that you don't have to, you know, pick an extreme. I just thought I'm going to retire this term. <laughs> I, you know, the the philosophy that like I believe in both of these women and what they can mm-hmm. accomplish and their powers as individuals, that very much still stands. But there is no need or place on my account to use a term that even a few people found offensive. I really admire you you pivoting so publicly and and be being willing to address these things with us. It's so interesting to hear your your point of view and kind of like how the SMT platform has evolved. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, I'd be lying if I said when I started all this that I knew I would <laughs> get into any of this, you know, that, that the royal world would turn so negative, that the racism towards Megan would be so awful. You know, I mean, even just discussing racism is something that I am not particularly used to doing. And what I have realized is as somebody in 2020 with a platform, it is a tremendous privilege for me to be able to talk about this stuff and share it with my followers. And so I occasionally hear from people that are like, let's just stick to the fashion. And it's like, nope, <laughs> that's not what I'm here to do. And yeah. there are a lot of other places you can find that. Yeah. So let's talk about a, a different pivot that you made bringing SMT from online into a book. So what made you decide to do that? Well, so obviously I'm a writer and a book is a dream. Mm -hmm. And I think every writer probably would say they had a book in them somewhere. And I had always wondered, you know, could I write a book? <laughs> what would I write a book about? Um, and with SMT, it came up a couple of times before I actually agreed to do this project. And it was the idea of how could I take what I do on Instagram and make it worthy of a book? Because what I do on Instagram I do sort of in, it's meant to be consumed in that form. I take a picture, I put a bunch of text bubbles on it. It's a real quick, dishy kind of like tap through kind of thing. And when you're meeting people on their phone, it's a different experience than when you're sitting down to read a book, right? And I kept thinking like, what could I do? And then it occurred to me that I could take what I was doing on Instagram and expand it and elevate mm -hmm. it. So the book looks not only at Kate and Megan, but at the Queen and Diana and understanding sort of the context and the ways in which they set this stage for royal style and how their choices and strategies have informed what we see in Kate and Megan today. And it was a thrilling, I mean, it was just, it was a dream come true of a project. It was just so exciting to be able to look deeper into royal fashion to understand it more and then to put together a beautiful book so it's not just a book of words um, though there are a lot of words in there but it's a book of pictures too there are 370 photographs that um, I selected with my photo editor to sort of tell their stories not just their biographies but tell their sort of sartorial biographies what I saw their their story through their clothes this might sound silly but I'm very excited because of my eyesight to be able to see these in in a bigger way like it's um like it's bigger than a trade paperback like it's almost like a coffee table style book like it's somewhere in between that size wise so you get like big photos instead of like me holding my thumb down and like trying to see on Instagram yeah yeah <laughs> the, the the size I really wanted um I really wanted it to carry the top of a coffee table stack. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So like if it's 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 not a it's not a coffee table book that's like big and um you know weighty and cumbersome, but it would sit sort of on the top so it would be pretty enough for that. But then also, you know, my dream was pre-COVID that you know you could put it in your in your handbag and read it on the subway kind of thing. I was like someday I'll see somebody reading my book on the subway. So I wanted it to be kind of portable and then I wanted it to be selfieable. That's not a word, but that you could hold it up and take a picture with it too. So it was we were trying to do a lot um, I hope when people see the book that they sort of recognize, I mean, I think you can when you're flipping through the, the sort of thought that went into all the visuals of it and how it packs a real punch. The, the early reviews I've read from people are like, I can't believe how much is in here, which is um, it's really, really satisfying for me to hear. Now, tell us a little bit about your writing routine. What was that like? Oh my gosh. Um, not great. <laughs> I, I know that, that I should we, be giving. <laughs> I know when we saw you in San Francisco, you were like on deadline, you just had a baby and you were like somehow like being superwoman and doing yeah, it how all. How do you do it all? 
well, I did this and I don't think I should, I don't think I should, I would ever recommend anybody do it the way that I did it. So I'm sort of embarrassed to talk about it. But I signed this book deal when I was seven months pregnant. Um, it was sort of my last window of time that I could fly from California to New York. And so I flew and took some meetings and um, I worked with our mutual friend, Kate Childs, um, CA, who's my agent. And we sold this book and I was like, yes, I'm pregnant with my third child, my first daughter. This is so empowering. I'm leaning into this. And and then the, the book went to auction, which was really exciting. And we had originally pushed it at, or pitched it as a May 2021, like a spring 2021 book. And the publisher that um, was coming in with the highest bid said, felt strongly that it needs to be fall 2020. And they were like, that means you're going to have to file this book by the end of the year. And I was like, no problem. Yes, I can do this. And oh like, my God. You have your third child. And I was like, in August. And I was like, yes, no problem. I can do this. So this was like May. That's where I had my third child in August. I got to work really in September. I was I was grateful that the way that the money was structured was that I had built in a budget for researchers. So I had people that were helping me. And so by the time I they were putting together these very meaty briefs on it. And but by the time I dove in in September, I was like, okay, here I go. <laughs> and then September through the end of the year was just a blur. I mean, writing a book is a really ambitious thing, I think, for any writer. Most magazine pieces that I write are like 2,000 words. This is like 60,000 words. You know what I mean? It's just in a whole nother level um, in terms of project size that I didn't totally know and appreciate. Um, and then as I was doing it, I did not file it by the end of the year. As I was doing it into January is when Megan and Harry announced that they were leaving <laughs> And that threw a whole twist in this. I was grateful, though. I mean, it's news. It's newsy. And, and it's obviously all in the book. Um, but it was a lot of work. And then the pandemic set in right as we were going through the designs. And um, so, yeah, it's it was um, I don't think anybody should ever do what I've done. But um, I'm glad to be on the other side of it. <laughs> oh, I bet. What about choosing the photos for the book? Um, how did you go about selecting the different pictures that you chose to feature? So photos are, I mean, as a words girl, this photos were a whole new thing for me. Um, and royal photos specifically are very expensive and controlled, right? Yeah. Um, these are beautiful photographs from famous photographers. And so it took a lot of negotiating um, with photo agencies. And these were all, these are all my money being spent on the photographs. That was another way that. that That's what I was going to ask. Was structured. Yes. Because like, just knowing about photography rights, I'm like, how did you get all these? Like. <laughs> That's your whole advance. I spent a lot of money on photographs. I mean, I spent a lot of money on photographs. And even my publisher was like, you don't really have to put that many photographs. And I was like, no, 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 I do. And um, (laughs) I I did. (laughs) I've never spent so much money on anything in my life. Um, So these photographs I care deeply about. But I just felt really strongly that I wanted. So the way the book is set up, it's, you know, one section on each woman. And then you're in between, you know, they're sort of intertwined their stories. So I see a lot of similarities between Kate and the Queen and then Diana and Megan. And you can kind of tell flipping through that, you know, where they kind of go. But I wanted this to be a really visually satisfying book. And so um, I worked with a good friend of mine um, was my photo editor and we worked together and there were all kinds of mood boards and I made a scrapbook and I was trying. I had never done this before. And so I don't actually know if I did it the right way or not. But this was sort of the system I came up with. And I put I tried to you know, look at the visual flow. So as you go from page to page that it makes sense and it's not jarring, but it also goes sort of chronologically for each woman. It was a tall order, but it was such a dream because I spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on Getty photographs, but now everybody gets to enjoy them (laughs) all in the book. What was the hardest part of the book to write? So I went through, so I, the way that I also... (laughs) 
structure this is I, I was like, I'm going to write one at a time. I'm going to like okay. immerse myself in a woman at a time. And the Diana period, although it was the most fascinating and still the the most interesting to me in the whole book because she was she was fairly new to me. It was very hard um, just because of when she went through, you know, I mean, it's very tragic, her story and the ways in which um, she was treated and what happened to her. I, I, I was in a real funk. <laughs> I was doing that research and reporting and my husband kept saying like, are you okay? And I was like, it's just so sad. <laughs> it was just so um, sort of heartbroken to, to, understand the full extent of Diana's story. Um, that was really challenging. Yeah. I'm very curious, coming from a reporting background, a different side of the publishing industry, what was the biggest surprise about book publishing for you? A, a lot of it, all of it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I grew up as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal where you do not just write a story and it goes in the paper. You write a story and an editor looks at it and another editor looks at it and another editor looks at it and another, you know I mean? It's called stadium editing. You kind of work your way up the chain there. And I'm grateful for that because it made me a much stronger writer from the outset. Um, and it made me very deliberate in my process. Um, book writing is sort of more all on you. You know I mean? I, part of why I struggled when I left the journal is because I, I left a newsroom. I left talented colleagues surrounding me, you know, where you could spin around and be like, I'm stuck at this point. Like, what should I, t you know, how should I, you know, write through this or something like that. And writing a book, you are in your own silo the whole time, you know, and I had wonderful, I had a whole wonderful team of people. I actually brought in a freelance editor named Katie Adams. Um, I worked with my agent. Kate was one, Kate Childs was wonderful in providing she's the input, but she's wonderful. Um, but like, it's you, this is your, your, your work, you know, and even on the publisher side, when I handed it over, there was very little that they, I mean, they made suggestions and very top line sort of edits, but a book is you, is the author. <laughs> and that was, um, that, that, that was a lot at times, but I'm grateful and I'm proud of it. And from the other side, I, <laughs> I say. So we're going to wind down with two very hard hitting questions. What do you miss most about New York? Oh my God, I miss everything. I have to say, like we moved to California and it was the right call for my family at this time. You know, my husband had a great promotion on the table. Um, I was, I had left the, or I was looking to leave the journal. I had sort of done what I wanted to do there. And so it was this adventure for us. Um, and while I love California, there's a lot to love about it. It is not New York. And I think having lived in New York for a decade, it just gets in your blood. <laughs> it just stays in you. And I um, I miss it terribly. And I hope that someday we find our way, if not back to the city, back to the vicinity of it. Because there's just an energy. There's an energy. And you're surrounded by a very, or I was, my friend group was a very eclectic group of professional and accomplished women. Yeah. And that was exciting to me. And I live in, where I live in California, I live in Silicon Valley and it's very, very tech oriented. So I have yet to find a royal enthusiast in my, in my friend groups out here. Um, that's not to say it's not filled with wonderful people. Um, I just find that in New York, I was really energized by, by just being there. Yeah. Now, our last question for you, what is the best place to get plush headbands? I feel like these have become a style signature of yours. Yeah, you have <laughs> headphones on right now, but when I picture you in my head, you're wearing a headband. 
Can I just say that headbands have been something that I have embraced and that has surprised even me because I think when Kate first wore hers, her first hat band is what I called it. Um, it was like a, a headband that wanted to be a hat. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, no. Like, what <laughs> is that? Like, that is so weird looking. I, I mean, you can, my SMD, <laughs> I was very, I was very surprised by it. But this is one of those things that it's like, don't knock it till you try it because you put it on and it's kind of like, oh, that feels fun. You know, I mean, it's just, it's such a, um, it is so fun. Thing. It is. I it's think such it's a good just, way to dress up a, like otherwise like really boring outfit. Yes, it also hides it, a multitude of like second day Harrison's. Oh yeah. The hat band <laughs> and a bun. Like, I mean, we're not doing yes. second day over here. It's like two weeks. <laughs> no, I mean, not two weeks, like four days. Totally. <laughs> or like, maybe know, it is two weeks. <laughs> in my case, Grace. Yeah. You just sort of put on a headband and then it draws all that attention there. Um, I would say that the headband world, there are a lot of very fancy and um, sort of more expensive options, but some of the best ones I found on Amazon. I mean, I know I'm not supposed to say Amazon, but um, you can experiment uh, with headbands there and find them in just about any color and any height. Um, you know, I found like I can't actually pull off the ones with the knot at the top. Like, okay. I've, I've tried a couple of those. Like I prefer a sort of, I have them right here. I prefer like a more padded. <laughs> yeah, that's more what I like. Sort too. of round padding. And um, and you can you can find them in any color. And I find the, the barrier to entry quite low because they're also cheap and yeah, it's just play around. I mean, if you haven't tried one, just give it a try. I'm it's adding fun. on a sub question. How many headbands do you think you own? Too many at this point because <laughs> I need somebody to help me understand how to store them because I would prefer to have like a rack where I can hang them over. Yeah. I Tyler, Tyler McCall from Fashionista, I think she has something like that where you can like a bar for them. Actually. Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> but my kids, when I have them displayed out, my kids are one, three and five and think they're the most fun thing to grab and put on and run around. And so I, I sort of squirrel them away now. Um, but I need it. <laughs> I would say easily a dozen or more. Yeah. Yeah. That's honestly not as bad as That's I not as bad. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's respectable. Yeah. It's yeah. a respectable amount. It's not okay. an hoarding okay. amount. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Wait, so you've been an amazing guest. And so you've earned what we call over here a desperation minute. Um, tell the people who are listening what they can do for you, where they can follow you, name of your book, the whole thing. So you can find me on Instagram at eHolmes, uh, where I talk about the Royals and all kinds of other things at this point. I'm very interested in the upcoming election and um, – you know, racial equality and talking about things like that is are really important to me. And then, you know, sprinkle in some of my kids stuff <laughs> in there. Um, but if you're going to do one thing, it would be to please buy my book. Um, the best way to do it is to call up your local independent bookstore. Independent bookstores need our love right now. Um, there is uh they are struggling. There's no, there's sort of no two ways about it. And so if you call them up and say, hey, I'm interested in this book, HRH, which by the way, stands for Her Royal Highness, um, then it's on their radar. It's on yours. You give them a sale and that's the best, um, that's the best way to do it. But thank you guys so much. This was really fun. Thank you for coming on. We had such a great conversation. I, I loved learning more about the Royals. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, welcome to my world <laughs> and, <laughs> and try a headband. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about some end matter, Grace. Yes, let's do it. What are you loving on Instagram right now? Oh, so I am loving Danny Pellegrino. So he has a podcast called Everything Iconic, which is a pop culture podcast. And he talks a lot about like uh, Bravo type TV shows. 
so I've, I've heard his podcast. He's so funny. I, I just don't watch a lot of these shows. However, a listener alerted me that on his Instagram, he watches and reviews Hallmark movies, and then he saves them to his highlights. And so it's like snarky, funny reviews of Jared Freed does that movies. too. I don't know if he still does, but he used to. He used to do chick flicks, but I've never Remember seen Remember Sex in the movie. City? Yeah, I love those. Yeah. So I watched – he has them saved to his highlights, and I watched a bunch of them, and I was like cackling. So I'm a very big fan of his Hallmark movie reviews. Yeah. What about you? What are you obsessed with on Instagram? It's a home account, and it's called Three Birds Renovations. And you and I were just talking about this before. Um, I feel like everyone we know is buying property and, like, doing these, like, massive renovations. And I'm having so much FOMO because, like, that's definitely something I want to do in the next, I don't know, year, year and a half. But, like, that comes with some, like, big life decisions of, like, where I want to live and, like, all of that. So I am living vicariously through others. And this is three Australian women. And they have incredible taste and they it's just like really beautiful decoration and renovation products and the renovation projects and i just like love their aesthetic i think it's really really beautiful um there's like this bed that looks like lady fingers there's a lot of um like that cinnamon pecan color and like blush but not in like the kind of overdone millennial pink way it's just like really simple and beautiful i love what they're doing I mean, I like anything that is, like, beautiful homes. Yes. So I could definitely get on board with this. It yes. feels a lot like um, – what's her name? Sarah Sherman. Um, she's in L.A. Yes, I know who you're talking about. I can't about, remember her, but her yeah. name. This is highly unhelpful. Is it Sarah Samuel? I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. But she did Mandy Moore's house. So if you look up Mandy Moore mm-hmm. decorator, you can find her. Yeah, this is a very nice, soothing vibe. It's really – yeah, it's really soothing to look at. Yeah. What are you obsessed with that's not on Instagram? So I have two. The first is a brand. It's a jewelry brand. I love all of her work. I think you might like it too. It's called Alice Ciccolini, C-I-C-O-L-I-N-I. She's on Net-A-Porte and it's just really colorful jewelry. It's like a mix of precious stones and metals, but also she adds in this really cool enamel work. I ended up buying a, a pair of emerald stud earrings from her they're like a little baguette emerald but they are encased in like a gold but then there's enamel cream colored polka dots over the gold Ooh! and i just think everything she does is really creative and interesting and you can read all about her background on her website she really draws a lot from um indian culture and all of the bright colors and like mix matched patterns but it's just amazing that she works all of that into jewelry. Yeah, this is very fun. I can't wait to see your earrings. And the other thing I have an obsession with, I started today because I've like, I literally have turned into this weird news obsessed zombie that just stares at the TV. And my aunt was like, I think you need a break. Like we have a little family group text. And she's like, I think you need a break. You need to watch the show. It's very murdery. It's very good. It's sh- It stars Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. And it's called The Undoing. It's on HBO. Oh, my God, you guys. It's so good. It is the murder show that I need right now. Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant are married. She's a therapist, and he is a doctor. And one of the moms at 
their son's school is murdered and then their whole lives start to unravel. And I don't want to spoil anything, but it takes place in New York. So it's making me like a little nostalgic for the city, the way that it was like, even just seeing Nicole Kidman, like walking down the street on a crowded street, not wearing a mask. I'm just like, Oh, olden days are like, there's a lot of stuff shot by the park. Um, it just makes me miss the city, but it's also murdery. And the sad thing is, is that there's only two episodes out right now. When this goes live, there'll be a third. But I am a huge fan, a huge fan. And you know, we were just talking about TV shows. And I was like, well, besides Love Life, I haven't really liked anything new lately. So you found it. I found a show. But I think there's only six episodes total. Is it a miniseries or is it? Is I there going to be another season? I th- I'm not sure. I think that it's based on a Leanne Moriarty book. I could be wrong. And so I don't know if like Big Little Lies will get extended. We'll see. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. What about you? Oh, this is something I gave you. No, it isn't. Oh, I didn't give it to you? No. Oh. You told me that you were going to and then you didn't. Oh, I totally did. I lied to you. So I, Grace, is responsible for this indirectly because she has recommended this to me about eight zillion times and I've just not listened. And It's It's your ideal mascara. It is. So I am obsessed with the Ilia mascara. And I bought it during the Sephora sale. I did a huge stock up because I was out of like a bunch of stuff. So I got the Ilia mascara and I had very low expectations, but I was like, I need mascara. And Grace has been saying this for so long that I'll try it. And then if I don't like it, I'll go back to what I usually use. And first of all, it has the plastic comb brush that I love. I just prefer it. There's this one Bobbi Brown mascara that got discontinued that is like my holy grail. Yeah. And I'm just constantly trying to find that. And this brush is a little different, but it's close. Yeah. So anyway, I put it on. And the reason that I haven't tried it up until now is because my experience with natural mascara has Most been of them suck. bad. So I was expecting it to be very inferior to a non-natural mascara. So I put it on and I just put it on one eye and Rachel was over and she was like in my living room, like doing work. And I went out and I was like, look at this. And I had it on one eye and not the other. And and she was like, great, you put on mascara, like good for you. And I was like, I didn't just put on mascara. I put on natural mascara. And she was like, what? (laughs) It's a bad story. Anyway. funny. Well, natural mascaras get a really bad rap. I know. My experience has always been bad. And then, so I put it on. I really liked the way that it went on. I liked the look of it. It is a very dark mascara. It's not as much a daytime mascara as I thought it would be. Yeah. I always associate natural mascaras as like, oh, it's going to be really subtle. Like, yeah, exactly. It isn't. It's like pretty dramatic. Even still, after I put it on and I liked it, I was prepared to dislike it at any moment where I was like, oh, it's going to like flake or, or rub off. And it didn't. It it wore super well. So I'm a convert. I'm a huge proponent of of this if you're also skeptical of natural mascara because I was going into this assuming I mean the good thing about Sephora is you can return anything yeah so I was like yeah I'm finally gonna do it but then I'm gonna probably not like it yeah and surprise surprise it's good I've been telling you this for a while now I feel very validated I know yeah um what about reading oh I have good reading to recommend so I finished anxious people by Frederick Bachman and that's the same author as A Man Called Ove. I'm very curious for your review here because I have that in my to-read pile. And I don't – I keep being like, mm, yeah. So I started it last week and I, I talked about this. And it's definitely outside my usual genre. It's a kind of like comedic police procedural about a robbery. And for the first two-thirds of it, I liked it. It was – It's very well written, which is especially impressive because it's a translation. It's like very smart, like the humor and the 
wordplay is all very good. And I was like, for the first two thirds of it, I was like, this is good. I don't know that I would give this like a glowing review or like shove it on people or like recommend it, but I don't like regret it by any stretch. Okay. Do you think I would like it? Well, wait. The last third of it is phenomenal. Okay. Phenomenal. Like, I was sobbing my eyes out, not because it was sad, just because of, like, the sheer humanity of the book and about, like, this group of people. And I I don't want to spoil anything, but, like, I lost it in the last third. Like, I cried multiple times. And it was so wonderful. Um, So, yeah, I, I do think you would like it. But... I mean, it's hard to say, like, you're going to go in and you're going to like the first two thirds, but, like, it pays off. Okay. But, um, oh, my gosh. Yes, I loved it. Okay. Maybe I'll read that next because I started, you know, I started reading last yesterday and I can't tell if I was just distracted or it's just not for me. I started reading the next Talia Hibbert book, the mm. um, Take a Hint, Danny, Danny Brown. Brown, and I just don't like it so far. I mean, I think give anything that you started on election day a second chance. I know. Chance. I think it gets a second chance. But I just was like, I couldn't get into it. I didn't like the main character. Mm. But I'll, I'm going to give it another try. Okay. Well, definitely try Anxious People and let me know okay. what you think of it. And then the other thing that I read was on Sunday night when I had very intense Sunday scaries, I read In a Holidays by Christina Lauren, which is their new book. And it is a Christmas book. I'm so excited to read this one. It was so fun. Um, it is a romance, but it is not quite as sexy as some of their others. I I feel like they just have so much range. I'm always like so, I don't know. I'm so impressed by how many books they put out and then also like how much I love them. I know. I love them. But anyway, so this one is, it's kind of like a Groundhog's Day type thing where a girl keeps going back in time and reliving the same Christmas holiday. And she's at this cabin with her family and then, like, a group of family friends. And they have all of these, like, very cute traditions. And I loved it. I loved her. I loved the love story. I loved the family story. I was just, like, smiling. It was just, like, a book that makes you feel happy. Okay. Maybe that's what I'll – all these things that you're saying, I'm like, maybe that's what I'll read. It was so good. I read it in one night and I just, like – it really took my mind off the election. And so if you're stressed about anything, like, it just felt like a, it was a good warm hug book. Oh, good. I'm excited. Yeah, it was fun. But they, about, they can't write a bad book, the two of them. I'm also very excited because we got an advanced copy of their next book. Oh, yes, we and, did. you know. Um, did I get that? I think I did. Yeah, and we got galleys. Like, they're just, like, yeah, bound like the galleys. Bound galleys. Whenever I get a bound galley, it, you know, it's like the – it literally kind of like looks like you went to Kinko's or something like it's like. But publishers only get like a handful of those. Well, That's precious. It's precious. But I also I always feel like Miranda Priestley's twins. Well, you and I. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't share. But also like when she has to get the bound manuscript of Harry Potter. And yes. I always feel so special. Like that's really hyped mm-hmm. up the manuscript in my head where I'm like, oh, my God, look at me. Yes, I know. So they have a new book that's coming out in May 2021. And I'm very excited for that one, too. What did you read this week? So I had – I kind of talked about this at the beginning of the episode, but just to review, the two nonfiction books that I'm reading are I'm listening to Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. I'm just about done with that. I cannot recommend that book enough. I've learned so much about the criminal justice system and, like, all of, like, the horrible injustices. Um, it's very upsetting. I like, cry listening to it. But I will say, like, I learned so much, and it's just a really good book. And I will say the 
I think we've talked about this before, but the movie is also excellent, but it really focuses more on just the Walter McMillan case, whereas the book dives into so many other things. Like I just finished the part about children that are like locked up for life because of things that they did when they were really young. And that like just like breaks me. The other nonfiction book I'm reading right now is Joyful by Ingrid Fatelli, which is recommended to me by my sister. She talked about it when she came on the podcast. And um, it's about the way that aesthetics and colors and things like abundance um, can bring joy and um, that happiness, yes, it does come from within, but it also can be impacted by aesthetics. And I, I, I only read like maybe a chapter every couple of days because it's pretty dense. It's your typical nonfiction book, but it's so interesting and so informational. A book that did not take me long to read was Pretty Things by Janelle Brown, and that was recommended to me, more me than you, when when Katie McGee came on the podcast. Well, I like it because I thought when she was pitching it, I thought it sounded really good. It's so good. I think that you would like it. So this is about two women, and their stories kind of collide. So one of them is a con artist. Her mother was a con artist, but her mother has cancer. She got like a great education at a liberal arts school, and then she's working in the city as I think like an antiques dealer of some sort. Then she moves back to LA to help take care of her mom and starts running her own cons with her boyfriend. Then her and her boyfriend decide to move to Tahoe to scam this really rich woman. And the um, really rich woman is called Vanessa. And she is an heiress, but also an Instagram influencer. And this author did a better job than some of the books we've read conveying like the Instagram influencer life. And it's just very twisty. And I love books about like scammers and con artists. And there is, is there any murder? I'm not going to give anything away, but it's less murdery and more just like twisty and dark. And I loved it. I could, I can't recommend it enough. It's like kind of long. I think it's almost 500 pages. Oh, wow. But I read it in a day. Okay. But that was during my like really, that was during my really antisocial weekend. Okay. Yeah. And if none of those hit the spot for you, we are reading a book that I highly, highly recommend for our November book club. So we are reading Destination Wedding by Diksha Basu. And it is about a woman who lives in New York. She's Indian-American. And she is going to India with her family for a cousin's very lavish wedding. And she has a very eccentric family. Her parents are divorced, and they're both traveling with new partners and there's like tons of drama at this wedding and it's very fun. It's it's not a romance as much as I would say it's like a quirky family story. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't put it in the romance bucket. Right. I, I just think from the cover it looks like you could. It does. It looks like a well, it looks like a light beach read and I remember like I moderated this panel for Random House and I saved that one for last cuz like, oh, this is the lightest one. Like I can read it in a day, but it is the character development is so good and the w- way that she writes, like you need a little more time with it. Like it's not something you can just like plow through in a good way. It was like a sleeper, but it's one of the best books I've read all like all this summer. Yeah, it was so good. And I want to be best friends with the main character. I feel like we would get along in real life. Yeah, same. And she lived in Williamsburg. So Mm -hmm. yeah. If not for her being fake, we could be friends. Yeah. (laughs) So if uh, you are reading. You know, you're really lonely when you start wanting to be friends with book characters. (laughs) No, I think it's like such a high compliment. No, I know. You're like, I want to be friends with this fake person. Anyway, (laughs) we'll be discussing it the last Wednesday of November, and we are also going to have a bonus episode with the author. Yes. In the meantime, 
Uh, if you'd like more of us or want to discuss anything we talked about this episode, join us in the Facebook group. Just search Bad on Paper on Facebook. Uh, we're also on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. And I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. And Rom-Com Pods is almost over. I can't I can't figure out time math right now if, if next week is the last week or there's one more. Yeah. And I'm on Instagram at Grace Atwood. And I have a blog, thestripe.com, where I post Monday through Saturday. I like that you changed it because I gave you grief last time. Well, I used to say every single day because most blogs, if you're lucky, publish Monday through Friday. And I give you a Saturday bonus post. <laughs> But that's not Which every I'm very proud day. of. Oh, shut up. We gotta go. <laughs> Bye.